0: Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. Wired gave way to wireless. Telegraphy gave way to telephony. Narrowcasts became broadcasts, or at least broadercasts. Scientists gave way to engineers. And now... The engineers give way to marketeers. And who better to take radio by the hand than head of publicity at Marconi's, Arthur Burroughs. This episode will delve into who this almost entirely unknown chap was and how he went from radio prophet to publicist to programme director, ending up as the BBC's first head of programmes and... The first voice on the BBC. Where's the room at New Broadcasting House with his name on it? I've never found it. Oh, and on this episode, a special broadcast memory from a radio legend, Emperor Roscoe, veteran of pirate radio and Radio 1, with an exclusive, his first ever podcast appearance. And he has tales to tell. You are very welcome to this, the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling... This is London Calling. Hello, hello. Welcome to this, the British Broadcasting Century. We are in recovery mode from the big birthday bash last episode. The Melbourne broadcast turned 100. Ah, what a party we had. Well, it's radio, so you wouldn't know if we did or if we didn't. But thank you so much. If you joined the Facebook live chat last week, thank you so much. If you didn't, I think it's probably still there on the Guildford Fringe Facebook page. You can find it there, facebook.com slash Guilford Fringe, if you so wish. Uh, so thank you for coming back uh, what have you enjoyed so far I would love to know do get in touch paul at Paulcarenza.com, or you can tweet me at bbcentury, Century or find us on Facebook the British Broadcasting Century there any questions comments and indeed your audio clips are welcome to be emailed in with your memories of early broadcasting it doesn't have to be as far back as the 1920s it could be something from childhood or some early broadcasting you discovered later in life. I suppose for me, things like the goons I discovered as a teenager, and that really set me up as a comedy writer, I suppose, when I just discovered how bizarre you could be, and I suppose that led me on to the pythons. But I've always come back to the wireless, the immediacy, the up-close nature, the speed at which things are made, oh, and the peril, because things do go wrong, and trust me, in this episode, something big is going to go wrong. But you move on and you keep on broadcasting. For example, for me, last year I was doing stand-in cover for BBC Sussex and BBC Surrey's Sunday breakfast show. First thing, 6am on a Sunday morning, the first job you do on air is read the news, because the newsreader comes in at 7am. Now, as a comedian, this felt a bit odd when I was first asked to do this. I thought, how have I ended up reading the news on the radio? Like, I'm hosting, presenting, I can get that as a transferable skill, but when they ask me to actually read the news and be serious, well... Things got rather serious when my phone, which was next to me by the microphone, it was on silent, not that stupid, but it wasn't on airplane mode because I am a bit stupid. So then I announced at 6am a very serious news story. It was the latest situation in Syria. My phone heard Syria and my phone thought I said Siri. I'm listening. No, no, no. Let me know if I can help. Broadcasting to Sussex and Surrey, my phone joined in the news headlines. Like a double act partner who didn't get the memo that they weren't invited. I was reading the news at this time. My phone was offering to help. I think Syria needs more help than Siri can offer. So I threw the phone across the studio, aware that I had to say sorry in a moment. I thought it might have misheard that, thinking it was saying "Siri" as
1: well. Siri about that. I mean, sorry about that.
0: So I should think. Yes, Siri seems to be the hardest word, along with sorry, sorry and Syria, it turns out. One day I'll take over. No! Be gone! I'm the ghost of broadcasting future. Well, I do hope not. Anyway, from the ghost of broadcasting future, shudder, to the visionary of broadcasting past, who had a firm eye on the future. That's who we're talking about this episode. We're zooming in on Arthur Burroughs, BBC's first children's presenter, the first actor on the wireless. But much more than all of those things, he is one of the very few to see broadcast radio coming. He has ideas of what it should all be like. <laughs> First, let's pick up where we left off last time, which is exactly where Burroughs enters the fray for us. So you might remember, last episode, Ditcham and Round's amateur music made way for Dame Nelly Melba's professional international concert. And that made the first public broadcast, the first celebrity-led performance, the first arts on the radio, arguably. But it was Burroughs who took over from Ditcham at this point. He took over for the announcements... He's Marconi's head of publicity. He's got a taste for public-facing radio. He's not just a desk-bound manager, is Burroughs. No, he likes to demonstrate radio sets. He likes to sell the idea of radio to the people. Broadcast radio, not just radio communication. And from here on, British radio really, I think, is, is Burroughs' story. I don't think there would be a BBC without him. This is 2 the London station of the British Broadcasting Company calling. Oh, and he'll be in a bit of rivalry in episodes to come with next week's featured character, Peter Eckersley. This is 2 Emma talk, ripple testing, this is 2 Emma talk. Who will become testing. the voice of British radio? Well, let's whiz back, first of all, to the war and see what Burroughs was doing then. Like all of our radio stars, Burroughs has a role to play in war. He's compiling intercepted German radio messages, Morse code, that is. Now, bear in mind, in World War One, radio is still person-to-person, theoretically. The idea is that they are sent by one person and received by another person. The trouble is, now, others can hear it too when they shouldn't. Now Burroughs is one of the few to see radio differently. He sees the benefit of transmitting radio broadcast. His background is journalism, and radio is just a hobby before the war. Unlike most pioneers we've met so far, he's not a scientist. Burroughs' obsession isn't diodes and valves, though he's familiar with them. His obsession is telling the story of radio. Perhaps that's why I feel a kinsmanship with Arthur Burroughs. I genuinely feel that Burroughs is the protagonist in British Radio's early story. He's certainly the protagonist in the novel and the screenplay that I'm currently trying to write about all of this. Oh yes, don't you think for a minute that this writer isn't working all hours telling this story in different media Not just as a podcast, but I've got the TV series Pilot Script, Uncommissioned. Producers, drop me a line. And a historical novel, also Uncommissioned. Publishers, do get in touch. If you're listening beyond 2021, do look out for the historical novel in all good bookstores. Uh, If there are any, I'm hoping there will be. Uh, At the time of recording, uh, every bookshop in the world is just about reopening and cleansing every book uh, as they do so. I digress. But you can see, given the state of the world today, this is why I wanted to disappear into a simpler, nostalgic time. A sort of Downton Abbey with radio presenters. It's Downton Blabby. That could be the title for the TV series. I digress again. Burroughs, radio visionary. He sees the benefit of broadcasting. At the end of the Great War, he writes an article called Wireless Possibilities. These are the words of Arthur Burroughs in 1918. There appears to be no serious reason politicians speaking, say, in Parliament should not be heard simultaneously by wireless in the reporting room of every newspaper office in the United Kingdom. The same idea might be extended to make possible the concert reproduction in all private residences of Albert Hall or Queen's Hall concerts. Intervals in the musical programme filled with audible advertisements, pathetic or forcible appeals on behalf of somebody's soap or tomato ketchup. Burroughs saw radio advertising coming. Let's not forget America's David Sarnoff. He of the Sarnoff shotgun. All right, that's not true. Future head of the RCA and another radio prophet. In 1916, he also saw broadcasting coming. I have in mind a plan of development which would make radio a household utility in the same sense as the piano or phonograph. The receiver designed in the form of a simple radio music box, arranged for several different wavelengths, changeable with the throwing of a single switch or pressing of a single button. The box can be placed in the parlour or living room. The proposition would be especially interesting to farmers and others in outlying districts removed from cities to enjoy concerts, lectures, music which may be going on in the nearest city within their radius. But being a prophet doesn't really pay any bills. In early 1920, Burroughs is head of publicity at Marconi's when our events from episode two were happening. That's and Round's train timetables, then becoming news and then music And that vision that he had of what radio could be, it's starting to take shape. But his workplace, Marconi House in The Strand in London, it's still resisting. Marconi HQ does still see their future as person-to-person, one-to-one. Burroughs has other ideas. So he leaves his desk at Marconi House for Chelmsford. He realises that they are onto something. It's still Ditcham's baby, according to the Marconi historian Tim Wonder. Ditcham calls himself head cook and bottle washer. He's behind the scenes programme planner, technician, engineer, a producer, creator. He's basically a podcaster. Ditcham's the engineer in front of the mic, but Burroughs has got his eye on it. But then the Melba plan is hatched. See last episode for details. And Arthur Burroughs devises this concert with the Daily Mail. It's the Mail's idea, but Burroughs runs with it and he is Dame Melba's official escort. So we ended last week with Burroughs back announcing the opera superstar. Burroughs, not Ditcham. Now radio has become proper, Burroughs is taking his place. So what next then after the Melba concert? Well in the summer of 1920 it's more concerts. Loritz Melchior, the famed tenor... He's also hosted at Chelmsford again. More positive reports from listeners in. Dame Clara Butt is the last star of the Chelmsford radio concert that August in 1920. And after that, radio silence again. The singing stops. So why is this? Marconi's are still a point-to-point messaging service, and they want to make money from it. These wireless concerts are draining money. They don't make profit at all. So Arthur Burroughs, he's on a mission to sell radio as an idea, mostly to journalists, but also to his own colleagues in Marconi House. There's a touring lorry around the country, broadcasting as it goes, but there's still disagreement as to what radio actually is. So Burroughs is invited to the Imperial Press Conference in Canada in July 1920. The Victorian is a huge ship with dozens of British journalists and a specially fitted cabin with a radio transmitter and receiver. That July, there are concerts at sea, broadcast from Chelmsford via Poldew in Cornwall, and Burroughs on board is impressing the press with the world's first mid-ocean concerts. And for other ships too, Burroughs plays gramophone records from the Victorian, an ancestor surely of the pirate radio DJ, and he's even taking requests. DJ Burroughs is playing songs like I Love a Lassie by Harry Lauder. I love a l- Then there's Chrysler's Caprice Viennoir. Another favourite is Cobb's On the Road to Mandalay. And we're playing this for all you ships out there. Armour Glucks, oh sleep, why dost thou leave me? The answer, probably because we're trying to sleep on a moving vessel. So then, what is Burrows? Is he a DJ at sea at this point? Is he a cruise entertainer? An ancestor of pirate radio, perhaps? The first of each of these. Yes, whenever you hear All Request Friday, or You Say It, We Play It, or Fox's Jukebox, the Earth's most powerful instant music machine, just think, it goes right back to Arthur Burroughs on a ship in the mid-Atlantic. Because, wait, you are like this, where would a fox be without Burroughs? See Fox's jukebox, Fox, Burroughs. Hey. Rewind that 15 seconds to enjoy that joke again. Either way, Arthur Burroughs is a visionary, putting his ideas of radio into action, even though he thinks this is the fun part, whereas the serious future for radio is in those journalists sending messages to each other. He's a record breaker. His was the first ship's newspaper to print news received by radio. And one broadcast on this voyage is the furthest shorter ship broadcast ever at this point. And the entire thing is all his idea. But it's not all smooth sailing, pun very much intended. And we'll find out how in a moment. But first, a guest. Now, while we're speaking of Pirate Radio's ancestor, let us meet a jock of Pirate Radio itself, a legend of 1960s broadcasting. He was on the original Radio 1 lineup in 1967. Before that, he joined Britain's offshore Radio Caroline in 1964. And before all that, he brought his transatlantic twang to European radio stations. And like our broadcasting pioneers of the 20s, his love of radio grew through military service, presenting on an aircraft carrier, the USS Coral Sea. In the boat that rocked Philip Seymour, Hoffman's character was based on this radio mega voice. Let's hear
1: from Emperor Roscoe. This is the Emperor Roscoe uh, checking in. I'm a virgin at this. I've never done a podcast before, so I have absolutely no idea. Back in the military in the 60s, doing Armed Forces Radio for the Navy. I went to the Chris Borden School of Broadcasting in San Francisco. Because I had uh, gotten out of the service after four years. I had an opportunity through my parents' uh, connections to go to France and work for a record company over there. They probably were despairing because I didn't go to college And uh, what was I going to do with myself? So on and so forth. And here I was at the princely age of 21, working as a car park attendant in my spare time along. uh, I was also a bartender at one point. And they said, all right, you can go work for Barclay Records. Here's your ticket and just do what he says. So I went, okay, great. I failed kind of as a producer. I don't think I came up with anything that blew their minds. So in that Period. They were paying radio stations to play Barclay Records uh, as much as they did on Luxembourg with all the major labels, and, and it was called Barclay Rama. And uh, Eddie said to me, he "said Okay, um, I want you to be in charge of the Barclay Ramas and come up." And I came up with I don't know a couple of thirty-minute shows a week and a couple of fifteen-minute shows, and they would go out to ten or fifteen stations that the, the Barclay Records had uh, deals with. I said, well, I need a studio. So he said, "We'll use the mixing room upstairs from our major studio. And then I walked into this room. And, of course, it has nothing to do with a, with a, with a radio studio. It's just all these giant tape recorders and a, uh, a mix post-mixing board and whatnot. So we jury-rigged a microphone in there, and I started playing with the echoes and the things. And within a month of me DJing these Barclay-ramas, uh, it, it appeared to be a big success. I met a guy in England who came over with Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, called uh, Henry. And Henry said, uh, "Well, yeah, you know, you you should be on this new ship that's starting over there. Ronan O'Reilly's got this ship called Caroline." And I uh, said, why why don't you do that? And I said, well, you know, I'm really happy here in Paris, you know. I said, maybe I can do it on tape. He said, well, all right. He said, make me a tape. So I went in that night about 2 o'clock in the morning after the Sam the Shem concert that I had introduced at the Olympia. And I cut a, a 20-minute thing. Uh, for Radio Caroline, and he took it back to England. And the following week I get this phone call from this guy called Ronan O'Reilly who said, I want you on the ship. I said, well, you know, (laughs) people in hell want ice water. You know, it's not exactly the way it works. And he said, listen, he said, I'll pay you £75 a week. You work two weeks, then I'll pay you for a third week That's uh, you're off the ship. And I said, well, it does sound kind of exciting because 75 quid back then was a lot of money. So I said, okay, I'll be over in a month. He said, fine. And uh, packed all my bags, went over there, got on the ship. And the rest is English history, so to speak. It was not very bothersome for me because I just spent four years in the Navy. So a lot of people went out there and they were terrified, you know, of the seasickness and the ship was rocking in the gales and the whole thing. And in my case, uh, I was quite at home. Uh, the mixing board was for a real radio and um, we had carts and, you know, cartridge machines to play jingles and, I was in heaven, to be quite honest, and uh, there was no nobody ordering you to do anything, just entertain the people. And it was so exciting, because we were doing something completely different, and not exactly law-abiding, so to speak. And I was, um, I was on the ship with who? I think with Tony Blackburn and Dave Lee Travis come to mind, and uh, Michael Hearn, uh, and we got into all kinds of mischief up there, but that is perhaps for another time because I spent a year on the ship and then uh, Ronan said, I want you to go back to Paris and work on Radio Luxembourg-Francais. You can do, you have carte blanche, you can do what you want, but turn that old fogey station around. We went over there, had a very successful year doing that, and I got a fellow showed up from Radio 1 who was a producer, And uh, he said, "Uh, you should come, and uh, we're launching Radio 1, an answer to the pirates, and we'd like you to be on it. And I said, there's no way, Jose, I'm leaving this because I'm making a ton of money in Paris, but I'll make you a tape. And that was uh, how we started on Radio 1. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that is the quick fix for the Emperor Roscoe and how all that started. Ciao for now.
0: Thank you, Emperor Roscoe. So, Pirate Radio and Radio Luxembourg, well, yeah, they both came out of the BBC monopoly problem at quite different times, though. Radio Caroline in the mid-60s, partly so, Ronan O'Reilly, who Roscoe mentioned, could get around record companies' control of the pop playlists. And, yet, yeah, Radio Caroline, named after who? The daughter of JFK. Based on a photo of the young Caroline Kennedy dancing in the Oval Office, playfully disrupting authority. And that's what the Pirate Radio station's We're doing. Oh, and later, Pirate Radio, Radio Jackie, that's named after Caroline's mother, Jackie Kennedy. So that keeps it all in the family. But no, I digress. Radio Luxembourg, the old fogey station that Roscoe indeed mentioned, that started way early, in 1933. And the idea formed just after the BBC did in the 20s. The idea being that if the British government will only allow one broadcaster within the British Isles, we better send some signals in from outside of those Isles. pop up radio stations overseas. So back in 1920, in our story, radio is indeed over a sea and it's playfully disrupting authority. The British government have banned broadcasts, so it's Arthur Burroughs, one of the BBC's founding fathers, demonstrating to journalists a new form of radio, how they can send messages home to press rooms. That could be, he thinks, what radio might be for if the government won't allow it to go any further. Except that while he's demonstrating these messages to the press, it simply doesn't work. For minute after minute, in front of all of these journalists, Arthur Burroughs is tapping away, trying to transatlantically shout, hello, Poldu, into the handset to try and reach the Cornwall Marconi station, but nothing. Eventually, when he's about to give up, having demonstrated nothing to the press but how failing this radio technology is, he finally gets a reply. But it's not Poldu in Cornwall. No, it's our old friend, Captain Round in Chelmsford. Hello, Burrows. Round here. I understand you're having some trouble reaching Pauldu. Round happened to be tuned in to the same frequency. Pauldu, it transpired, had been ordered to stay silent due to a French barge in trouble in the channel. Radio had to stop. And that one demonstration epitomises the entire problem of radio in the summer of 1920. It's worked. It's found an audience with the Melbourne concert. But the government needed to keep the radio wave superhighways clear, like the hard shoulder of a motorway. Don't occupy it, we might need it for an emergency vehicle. In the case of Burroughs, bellowing away at sea, it was a French barge needing rescue. But there were other similar problems. There were planes trying to land, unable to hear anything but a lovely concert from Chelmsford featuring Lawrence Melchior. Lovely, I'm sure, but not quite as satisfying as landing a plane when you want to. And so, the gap begins. By late 1920, the government have, yes, effectively banned all radio broadcasts. There are a few successful demonstrations here and there. In Burroughs' 1924 book On Broadcasting, in fact I've got it here, a demonstration was arranged between Chelmsford and Rome. The Italian journalists in this country were invited to telephone a number of messages by wireless to their editors... Shorthand writers were assembled near Rome to receive these messages. But one young journalist was so overcome with the novelty of the experience, he delivered his message in excited tones at something approaching 250 words a minute, whilst thumping the table and gesticulating wildly. This was too much for the note-takers in the Emerald City. But that and a few amateur tests is about it. At a 1920 Wireless Society of London meeting... The General Post Office argued that we are in one giant laboratory. We must restrict use accordingly. Therefore, there should be limits on hours and wavelengths. And soon the Chelmsford Works closes. That place, the scene of Ditcham's news service, of Winifred Sayers' first warblings and Melba's international concert. But no, Marconi's are focusing elsewhere. Ditcham and Round return to engineering and their on-air contributions are done with for now. The party is over. But, spoilers, radio does come back. As it will next time when we'll meet the man who brings it back with a bang and a clink and a gulp and a warble and a thump of the piano and basically it's wild chaos. Forget Moyles, next week Peter Eckersley is the saviour of radio. Before Chris Evans, the radio shows were planned in the pub a 100 years earlier. As for the future of Arthur Burroughs, well, you will have to wait for future episodes to find out more about him. I could tell you now, but that would be spoiling things. I could tell you how he's the first BBC newsreader, reading the first report fast and slow to see which people preferred. How he started Children's Hour, how Burroughs played Father Christmas in the first British radio drama, how he became the BBC's first director of programmes, how he formed one quarter of the BBC's workforce by the end of 1922, and how he helped make all of this happen. But we must tell the story in order. So next week, that rivalry begins between Burroughs and PPE. PPE, I hear you say. How topical. Different PPE. This is Peter Pendleton Eckersley. Next time on the British Broadcasting Century. Speaking of those who help make things happen, let's give a quick nod to a couple of brilliant people who are doing marvellous things to help celebrate radio history. Andy Wormsley and his Radio Jottings Twitter account. You can find him there. And he blogs about the history of radio. Fascinating insights there. I learn something every time I read a new blog post. David Lloyd as well, his Radio Moments. You can find his podcast and read his books. And I've mentioned a couple of times Tim wonder He is the Marconi historian, and he's been doing some talks as well in this 100th anniversary of Broadcasting's birth if you would like to support the podcast all of this costs money web hosting equipment that sort of thing you could go to coffee.com that's ko-fi.com slash paul carenza that's for tips for coffee if you'd like to do something regularly and get some benefits and patron only goodies and things there is patreon.com slash paul carenza you can always have a look there see what you might get and see if it appeals i thank you for any help you can give this is a one-man band but without the band And of course, there is another way you can support us by liking, sharing, rating, reviewing, subscribing. All of those things will help boost the podcast. Get it out there. Just talk about it to somebody. Let them know you enjoy it. They might like it too. And do follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of that community. Otherwise, it is just me in a wardrobe surrounded by trousers. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza, with original music by Will Farmer. Archive clips are, to the best of our knowledge, all in the public domain, being as old as they are. We hope you agree, but if you don't, and you own them, do get in touch, accept our apologies, we'll remove them. You'll never hear them again, apart from your own private copy, which you clearly own. Here to inform, educate and entertain, this has been and will continue to be the British Broadcasting Century.